The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host today. We'll be uh, diving into another one of our summer uh, series denominational debriefs. And this time we're going to be looking at the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. That's RPCNA Synod, which is held annually. I have with me the Reverend Kyle Borg, and I'm going to be introducing him in a second, but I want to thank him up front. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us for this denominational debrief. Oh, absolutely. It's my privilege to be able to be here today. Thank you. So this year, was uh, we saw the 186th Synod of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. It was held at the end of June, so uh, just a couple weeks ago, June 28th through the 30th, in Marion, Indiana, at Indiana Wesleyan University. And Kyle is a pastor in the RPCNA. He's the pastor of Winchester Reformed Presbyterian Church in Winchester, Kansas. He served there since July of 2013, but he's originally from another rural community, Fairmont, Minnesota, and he graduated uh, with a philosophy degree from the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. He earned his MDiv from Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it was there that he became acquainted with the RPCNA and also became a member there of uh, of a congregation of the RPCNA with his family in 2010. In addition to his pastoral responsibilities at Winchester, he serves on the Education and Publication Committee of the RPCNA, and he blogs at gentlereformation.com. He's also co-host of the Jerusalem Chamber podcast, and we were privileged to lend Dr. Ryan McGraw to him earlier this year for a special edition of the podcast dealing with uh, the, the Trinity, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, and particularly that uh, the chapter in the Confession. So again, we're very happy to have Kyle with us, and uh, I'm anticipating a, a very exciting uh, podcast episode dealing with the RPCNA's Synod this year. So before I launch into anything particular to this year's Synod and the business of it, Kyle, I'm hoping that you can introduce to us the RPCNA's way of doing things. and In particular, how does the RPCNA conduct its Synod, and, and what is the atmosphere like? Well, that's a great question for those who are not familiar with the Reformed Presbyterian Church. I remember as a student, when I was thinking of coming in, I was encouraged by some pastors in the RPCNA to be sure to come to Presbytery meetings and come to Synod because you really do get a feel for what the RPCNA is is about. And I think one of the unique aspects of our denominational Synod is that when we get together, uh, it, it is kind of like a family feel. Uh, that's partly because uh, many people in the RPCNA are related. Uh, and if you go down the list of names, you'll see how many family connections there really are. So in one sense, it truly is a family reunion. But we're also very glad that in the last uh, decade, uh, last 15 years maybe, uh, the RPCNA has grown by a number of people coming into the denomination from outside. Uh, we, we, I would be one of those people uh, with no historic roots at all in the RPCNA. Uh, but one of the wonderful things about our denomination is that even though I'm quote-unquote an outsider, uh, the RPCNA has some very big arms, and they're, they're more than willing to envelop uh, newcomers into this family-like feel. So when we gather at, at Synod, uh, there is this family-like gathering. 
but one of the things that I also think our synod is developing a little more, and, and maybe we'll get into this today, uh, is that while we have a very relational, family-like feel, we also have a number of people who are trying to uh, remind the RPCNA of some of the policies and procedures that we have. Uh, we don't want to sacrifice the family feel for Presbyterian polity, but neither do we want to sacrifice that polity that we hold so dearly uh, for the sake of relationships. And so in some ways, as we gather for Synod, I, I think it's a bit of a balancing act. How do we at the same time maintain these close relationships, this family-like feeling when we gather together, but how do we also respect and remain faithful to the Directory for Church Government, uh, maybe the Book of Discipline, uh, those those guidelines that we have all agreed upon in, in our ordination vows to uphold. And so it's, it's really a wonderful experience. I get very excited to go to Synod. I, I get to see some of my closest friends uh, in the ministry, men whom I love dearly and, and are able to interact with throughout the year. But really, Synod becomes the time we get to see each other face to face. And so as much as we take up the business of the church, it, it also becomes a time to help foster relationships and uh, mutually encourage one another. So, Kyle, how many synods have you actually attended? Do you know off the top of your head, or do you know when you started going to different uh, to different synods? That's a great question. So I came in, let's see, your biographical sketch of me. By the way, did you get all of that just off the internet? Because I, I didn't give that to you. That was impressive. I got all of that by osmosis. I just, I just know about you. Man. No, I, I Man, checked out General Reformation. <laughs> I checked out GeneralReformation.com. That's where, that's where I got a lot of that information. Do you know off the top of your head, what's my social security number? I, I, I'm i filling out an application and need it. So if you <laughs> well, pass that my way, that'd be helpful. I'd rather not share that on my podcast, <laughs> so, man. It might get you into some <laughs> yeah, trouble. All right. Fair enough. So you noted in, in the opening biographical sketch that uh, my family and I became members of the RPCNA in 2010. Uh, so my first synod was in 2009, and since then I've only missed one uh, due to, I forget what was going on, I just didn't go. Um, and so this was my seventh synod. Okay, so you have a pretty good handle on on how things go. Now this year, and we're going to talk about the reasons behind this, but this year was is a bit of a shorter synod, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And so how did that how did that stack up to how things ran in the past? Did it seem like business was rushed or, or people were a bit more tired or harried or, or irritated or was it just that you all were sad to leave at the end because you weren't going to spend as much time with all of your buddies? Yes, all of that. So uh, I know we're going to be getting into this because we had a, a special committee deal with the topic. But one of the things that the RPCNA has been exploring over the last number of years is how to increase our ruling elder participation. Uh, it's very easy for teaching elders. Obviously, we get the week off. Uh, we don't have to worry about taking vacation time in order to go to a, a meeting of synod. Uh, our travel expenses are covered, and we have been exploring ways to try to get more involvement from the ruling elders. And one of the ways that we've decided to do that is by having a shortened synod, uh, which in theory sounds really great. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I say that our synod deals with what I call the goldfish mentality. A goldfish will continue to grow uh, to whatever size it can fit into its container. So if you give it a really little container, it'll remain pretty small. If you give it a big container, it's just going to keep growing. And synod can sometimes be like that. Uh, if we schedule a week, 
uh, we will draw out the business of Synod inevitably until that closing hour that we've all decided upon. Uh, whereas a shortened Synod is supposed to help encourage uh, maybe being a little more expedited, maybe being a little more organized and moving through certain reports uh, with, with some speed. And so in theory, it sounds like a, a good idea, but I think we're dealing with some challenges there uh, where we've been kind of forced to committee a lot of things out. Um, and this year, for instance, was our, our really one of our first very shortened synods. And it just so happened that all kinds of committees had to report this year. And I think we saw the downside of a shortened synod as a result of that. But next year, we're actually going to be doing a shortened synod once again in Indiana. So we're testing it out. Uh, we're trying to see what works and what doesn't. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, that, that was our experience in some of the other assemblies, national assemblies that uh, that do operate on a, on a tighter schedule than, say, uh, than some of the other ones that operate on a longer, more drawn-out schedule. So I'm trying to be as nonspecific as possible but because I want to keep the focus on the RPCNA and not what on other groups do. But uh, shifting uh, shifting back into gear here, the stated clerk reported that, that the RPCNA today consists of 89 congregations and nine mission churches with an overall membership of 7,076 members. And on any given Lord's Day or, or Sabbath Day, you're going to have 6,000 people in services at our, in RPCNA congregations. So with the amount of attention that you all get, it's pretty clear you... you uh, you punch outside of your weight class. You know you're a very small group, but you have you, you carry you, you know you throw your weight around, and and you know you have a lot of influence over um, a variety of other denominations. I mean, at least where I'm from in Philadelphia, at our PCA church, almost uh, you know almost you could say the majority of our college students at any given time are at your denominational college or at Geneva, and um, including my pastor's daughter and uh, and others. So anyway. How out of that out of those eighty nine congregations and seven and nine mission churches, I'm sorry, seven thousand members, how many men came to Synod this year as voting commissioners? Do you know? That number was reported and my memory is gonna be slightly fuzzy, but it was between one hundred and eighty five and no more than two hundred. So somewhere within that fifteen point gap, uh, it was how many delegates we had. And roughly, either in percentages and not or numbers, whatever you feel whatever you think that you remember best what's the split between ministers and ruling elders our constitution requires 25 percent of all delegates to synod to be ruling elders in order to achieve our quorum and uh, this year we were very thankful we had the most ruling elder participation that uh, most people could recall in the history of synods and so this year uh, that 25 percent was up significantly and i forget exactly what the percent was but we, we uh, easily had more than a quarter of our delegates as ruling elders. But still nowhere near half and half, right? No, yeah. no, no, nowhere near. And, and in the RPCNA, you know, is, is, the, is the teaching elder or minister um, office and the ruling elder office seen as, as equal offices and just distinctions within one category? Or are they seen as distinct offices uh, with some kind of um, ranking of some kind, or, 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 you know, how does that work? On paper, we would be two office, uh, where the ruling elder, teaching elder occupy the same office with different functions. And the way that that plays out, uh, a lot of people joke that we're really two and a half office in nature. Uh, but when it comes to the courts of the church, there, there would be a parity. Um, and, yeah, there would be a parity. 
you know, you have disparity uh, you know, theologically. Uh, you don't want disparity. You, we already discussed the one measure that the RPCNA has taken with some success of shortening the assembly. And uh, the PCA will be doing that next year as well, going on a, a tighter schedule. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. But what what else is the RPCNA doing to close the gap? And maybe here you can tell us a little bit about the special committee addressing ruling elder participation at Synod that reported this year with some recommendations. Yeah, so I think it was, don't quote me on this, either three years ago now or four years ago, Uh, We did establish a special committee to study and think through how we can increase ruling elder participation. And I remember the synod where this came up, uh, we almost did not have a quorum, which would have been devastating to have gathered all these delegates and spent all kinds of money for travel expenses only at the end of the day to not be able to constitute our court. And that quorum was missing with regard to ruling elders. Uh, I think we ended up uh, snagging somebody who was in the area, so we had just the right amount. And that began to cause some concern that we need to be encouraging our ruling elders with, with more participation in the courts. And this committee did an immense amount of work uh, sending out surveys, trying to get to the hub of the problem. Why, why is it that our ruling elders are hesitant to come to the courts of the church? And I'm going to be painting with a very general brush here. There's, there's probably, you know, if there's, I don't know, 600 ruling elders in the RPCNA, there might be 600 different reasons. Uh, but some of the concerns that were raised um, were that the way that our constitution seems to structure things, uh, there seems to be more of a disparity. So, for instance, uh, and I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong, I'm just going to state the facts. Um, in the RPCNA, a teaching elder may always serve as a voting member of the court. Whether that teaching elder has a call at the time or not, whether that teaching elder is retired, a ruling elder must be commissioned or or sent uh, by a local congregation. And so ruling elders do not have that same privilege. Uh, They cannot just show up at synod and by virtue of their being there be made a a voting uh, member of synod. And so there's been things like that. I've already mentioned that finances are, are often uh, a thing for ruling elders. You know, ruling elders need to take time off of work. Uh, time off of work for some of them means they don't get paid uh, if, if they're not on salary, but they're on hourly. Uh, needing to use a, a whole week of vacation uh, for synod uh, can also be stretching depending on how much vacation uh, a ruling elder might get. And so there's any number of reasons why the ruling elders don't participate as much. And this committee brought a number of recommendations, uh, quite a few recommendations. Several of them were were adopted. And one of the things that synod is trying to do, or some of the things to encourage ruling elder participation, we've already mentioned a shortened synod. Uh, to try to encourage more. Uh, We've also established a fund uh, through our finance committee uh, that will award what you might call scholarships. So there's a $5,000 fund that has now been set up and 10 ruling elders will be eligible uh, to apply and receive $500 for their work at Synod for the week. So if they're losing compensation at work, that's an avenue that is now open to them uh, to try to be a bit of an incentive to to encourage them to come. Um, other things that uh, the committee did, the committee really 
emphasized both the duty but the privilege of participating in the higher courts, uh, kind of a reminding to the ruling elders that your vows for office uh, really do, you do vow to participate in the higher and broader courts of the church. And so there was kind of a reminder, you might want to say a recommitment to that, saying, you know, these are vows you've taken, you're accountable to do this, so let's do this. Um, and generally, I think trying to continue to improve the attitude that teaching elders have towards ruling elders, to remember that they are there and they participate in these courts on an equal footing, that we value their input, we need their input. Uh, they have an equal work of shepherding in the church. They have an equal interest in the things that we're talking about. Um, and then there's some challenges that we're, we're still trying to think through and, and how to overcome. Teaching elders are at synod every single year. Uh, ruling elders, you know, in my congregation, I have four ruling elders and they cycle. So they're only coming to 25% of the synods. And, and part of the, the problems that we face is how do you get caught up? How do you stay on top of what's going on? And so uh, the committee had a lot of good recommendations. Uh, they had some that we didn't accept, we didn't adopt, um, but they did a lot of work in trying to help frame the attitude of the RPCNA and and helping to encourage ruling elder participation. Certainly any, any change that's going to take place needs to have a theological basis. And I think emphasizing the parity of ruling and teaching elders or ruling elders and ministers, uh, that's a great starting place. And then also, uh, you know, up front, you know, telling men when, when they're when they're being nominated to be elders, sitting down with them as part of their officer training to say, you know, if you if if you're willing to be a ruling elder, that means among you know visiting people in their homes occasionally, and and you know being on call for the pastor when he's unavailable, and and just overseeing the work of the church also means. You know, going to going to synod, committing to going to synod on a regular basis, whether that means every year or every other year or every three years or whatever, um, you know, committing to do that. And if you're not able to, for whatever reason, then that may be an indication that, that you shouldn't be a ruling elder, that there's other ways to serve God honorably yep. in the church, right? So that's— um, yes. Yeah, that's something I, I had heard or read read or heard recently. Um, just a word of advice to to young teaching elders as you think through uh, you know planting a church, organizing a church, or or taking a, a small church and, and seeking to to pursue revitalization is when you have officers coming through, not to lower standards, and to remember that participation in broader courts is important for your elders. So that's. Um, it's really good to see the RPCNA making, seeming to make some headway on this issue as larger denominations also consider how in the world are we going to, to, to keep away from an exclusively uh, teaching elder assembly down the road. So uh, thank you for sharing all that, Kyle. The, you know, you had a couple other committees. I think you had three other special study committees and then the two judicial committees that that met during the course of the week. Let's we'll we'll talk about the judicial committees in a second, but um but at least, you know, the these three special study committees. Can you can you briefly walk us through each of the issues that were addressed 
by these committees, you know, what instigated these issues, um, you know, what, what maybe some of the specialized vocabulary means. Let's start with that special committee on vocalized prayer. What instigated the formation of that committee and, uh, and, and what did they report back to Synod? That committee was instigated uh, two years ago, I believe, uh, at the request of a presbytery. Uh, there was a disagreement in a local church that arose about who is allowed to pr- uh, pray in public worship. And maybe surprisingly, it actually wasn't an issue of gender to begin with. Uh, can women pray? It was actually the question, can non-ordained people vocalize prayer in public worship? And the RPCNA is very diverse with its practice on this. Uh, there would be churches where only the pastor uh, prays uh, in practice. Uh, there would be other churches where they would say any ordained elder can pray. Uh, there would be others who would say, you know, anybody can pray. And there are churches in the RPCNA who, during the worship service, essentially have a prayer meeting where people can stand up and not only share requests, but anybody that wants to can pray from uh, can pray from the floor, so to speak, in a worship service. And so this has been a, a pretty big question in the RPCNA. Our presbytery was dealing with this question. I was actually sitting on the study committee for that when Synod appointed a committee and thankfully got me out of having to do any work because we thought we would default to Synod's committee. Um, but this is a big issue that comes up, and, and it does because one of the you might say distinctives of the RPCNA is a particular way in which we apply the regulative principle of worship. Uh, All Presbyterians believe in the regulative principle of worship. We have different ways of applying that. And the RPCNA does exist in part because we apply it differently than, than other people. And so to think through what should, should not be permitted in worship is, is a very, very important topic. Uh, first, just biblically, but secondly, for our denominational identity. And so this committee uh, met for the course of whether one or two years, um, and there was a, a majority report and there was a minority report. Uh, the majority report said, uh, you know what, let's just, uh, let's keep it the way that we do it. Let's keep this at a... Uh, Let's let the local session determine who can and cannot pray in a worship service. The minority report said that's not sufficient. We should be striving for unity in the way in which we worship. Uh, And so in the interim, let's leave it the way we have, but let's not give up really carefully thinking through who who can pray vocally in a worship service. And so it wasn't just a matter of, um, you know, having women lead worship. It was a matter of any unordained person leading worship or even 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 speaking out during a worship service uh, during times of corporate worship. Yeah, that, that's correct. Our, our Constitution says the elders shall lead in prayer. And the question is, what does lead mean? Does that mean they are the ones to pray or does that mean they exercise oversight um, in a way that opens it up for other people to pray as well. So. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's very interesting. Thank you for opening that up for us. There was another committee, and this one has me a little baffled. I couldn't find a whole lot of details on it, and, and you know, I realized the term that's being used here might be being used in a specialized sense, but this special committee on the mediatorial kingship of Christ. What instigated the formation of that committee? And maybe maybe you can tell us what what 
does the committee mean by mediatorial kingship of Christ? So I'm going to be very simplistic with my definitions here. Uh, if listeners are more interested in this topic, I'd, I'd strongly recommend Messiah the Prince by William Symington uh, as a good, uh, somewhat clear and comprehensive statement about this. But one of the major distinctives of the RPCNA, we of course are exclusive psalmody with no musical instruments, but the mediatorial kingship of Christ would be what we regard as another distinctive of our denomination. And, and basically, and again, I'm, try, I'm being very simplistic here, but we would say that Jesus Christ as the God-man, so that's the mediatorial language, um, as the Son is incarnate, that Jesus Christ incarnate is king over both church and state. Uh, now, he exercises that kingship differently, uh, but as the mediator, he is king over church and state. And sometimes you would hear a distinction being made that he is mediatorial king of his church. Uh, because he is God, he has an essential kingship over all things. Uh, but as his mediatorial kingship, a lot of people would say, is restricted to his kingship over the church. We extend that, that Christ is king of both uh, church and nations. Uh, and that is a distinctive that we hold back into the covenanter times of, of the 16th, 17th century. Um, I should note men like George Gillespie would disagree with us on this. Uh, George Gillespie argues against this very view, thinking that it leads to um, Erastianism, uh, uh, a, a state over the church, so to speak. Uh, but it is a distinctive, I, I disagree with that assessment, but it, but it is a distinctive that we hold to. And um, a, a big question has always been present in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of, okay, what does that practically mean then? If Christ is king of nations, what does that, what's the practical working out of that in the lives of congregations. And for a number of years, until it was either 1966 or 1969, um, we were dissenters when it came to voting because we believed that the Constitution, or we did at that time believe that the Constitution uh, was in error because it does not recognize the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so our denomination actually had a position where we dissented from voting um, until our nation would recognize Christ as king. But how that really practically works itself into politics, into society, into our understanding of the kingdom, et cetera, et cetera, is still a question that many people have. Uh, and so this committee was assigned, I think, four years ago now to work through uh, the practical application of the doctrine of the mediatorial kingship. And uh, that committee has continued to ask for extensions each year. I know, I know some of the members. I know they're doing a lot of work. They're doing a lot of hard work. They're doing a lot of thorough work. Um, but so this committee is continuing. They didn't come with any uh, any recommendations this year other than please let us continue the work that we are doing. Uh, but that would be what that committee is all about. So the mediatorial kingship of Christ, specifically in relation to his kingship over the state as understood by the RPCNA? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Paint, painting with a broad brush. Yes. All right. For all our listeners, I exhort you keep an eye out for that report. That will be a valuable uh, contribution to ecclesiology in the Presbyterian tradition, and um, something worth uh, familiarizing yourself with. So, Kyle, moving on, you also had a special study committee on gender identity, and now. Was there a specific issue in one of your churches that gave rise to the formation of this committee, or, or was it just formed in response to the very obvious things that we're seeing um, in, in the world broadly? If my memory serves me correctly, and I think it does here, it was in a response basically to culture. So uh, a number of years ago, <clears throat> I think probably four or five, uh, the RPCNA came out with a statement on Uh, sexual orientation in the gospel. Uh, And that did come out of an issue that was being faced uh, by a local church and by a presbytery, and Synod sought to speak very clearly on the issue of sexual orientation. Uh, I think we would all agree homosexual practice is sinful, and the question that we were faced with is, is orientation itself uh, orientation toward same gender, same sex, is that sinful and does that need to be repented of as well? And so the RBCNA a number of years ago wrote that and we, we sent that out to our fellow NAPARC uh, brothers uh, and sisters and it was very well received. It was a phenomenal report, uh, very well researched, very clear. And this committee that we established on gender identity was a further response to the cultural milieu that we find ourselves in. And you have a you have a heavyweight in the RPCNA um, who who speaks to these issues, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, who is you know she's gotten a lot of attention. Her books have been very popular um, with a. Uh, a kind of a broad array of at least conservative evangelicals. Um, did she have any role at all in this study committee? She is uh, a major gift to the church. Uh, one thing I will say, and I'm not trying to be overly secretive, but it was decided uh, at Synod that the names of the authors and contributors of this paper would be removed uh, for the sake of their own personal well-being. Uh, we, uh, you know... Speaking of Rosaria for a minute, you know, Rosaria has been the target of many liberal uh, pro-LGBTQ groups, and I think we were seeking to really establish that this paper was adopted by our synod. It is now the position of our church. It's not the position of a couple of authors. So I'm actually... I, that's probably a little evasive, but I, I, I'm not going to say who authored it, who was helping contribute to it. But what I do hope is that the RPCNA is helping the reform community think through this because this is a cultural crisis we need to confront with Scripture. So, I think that's a, a, a great step of wisdom, and I wasn't aware of that. So when I asked the question, um, you know, I, I learned the answer to, uh, to, to the authorship of that report, too. But I think that's, that's hugely wise. And when, when Crown and Covenant Publications, that's the publications wing of the RPCNA, does distribute this material, I think it, it, it will be a blessing to the church. And it's, it's good that it's going out anonymously, or at least just under the moniker of the Reformed Presbyterian Church North America. This is our position, and uh, we've adopted this corporately. So I think that's, that's a mark of wisdom. You know what? I think we can... Uh, we could share, though, what the proposed definition of gender from the report was, because it's not a definition I've seen before, and you can tell me if it was adopted or not. I'll read it, and then uh, you okay. can tell us if, if this was actually part of the report that was adopted. We will argue that gender is a 
calling the individual received in his or her anatomical constitution. Gender should not be viewed as an identity rooted on one's psyche or brain. I uh, hope I'm not going to be too wimpy here. Um, This report I thought was very well researched. It was very clearly um, written, and, and I appreciate the work that went into it. It is also on a very high level. Uh, the the people who committed to writing this gave us a phenomenal report that really digs into the cultural war surrounding sex and gender. And so in setting forth that definition, I'm not going to pretend to completely, fully, comprehensively understand it. But what, what they were aiming at, I, I believe, and from my understanding of on-floor discussion and having read the report, talked to the authors, is that in today's world, there is such a, a disjunction between sex and gender. Uh, we see that where people, you know, that's really how, how things are being defined. Sex is one thing, uh, gender is another, and gender is fluid, you can have, uh, you can be uh, sexually, you can be a male, uh, but you can gender uh, identify as a woman or vice versa. And what the paper is seeking to do, uh, and it deals with the philosophic presuppositions that have brought our culture there, uh, but what the paper was seeking to do is not drive a wedge between sex and gender. And that while there might be what you call gender confusion, and people may not understand the way they feel, the way they think, that gender is not a fluid category. Uh, Gender is not something that we can identify for ourselves, but it is closely tied to our sex. And, And they draw that back into the image of God and the fact that we are created male and female. And scripture knows, in one sense, no other distinction. And so in in giving that definition, I I think that's primarily what they're seeking to do uh, is they are saying, no, gender is what, as an individual, you have received due to your anatomical constitution. It's not a psychological state. It's not a decision you make. It's not even rooted in, in perhaps one's brain. Uh, where there there is confusion. So I don't know if that answers it, but I, I, I believe that's what they were going for with that definition. So it's not a social construct. Yeah, I guess that would probably have been the way easier way to say that. <laughs> so, yeah, gender is not a social construct. Period. So now we also had in these, you know, from from what I understand, dominated time on the floor at at synod. But uh, you had two judicial cases. Judicial cases are always tough, but they also show us um, our theology in action. You know, as as matters of controversy come before the courts of the church, how does the court decide on them and and deal with them uh, based on the the theological you know groundwork that's been laid beforehand? So, let's start with the uh, probably the the easier of the two to process, and that would be the one from do, do the complaint by members of a session in presbytery regarding the beverage used in the communion cup. And I think if I have my notes in order here, that was out of Pacific Coast Presbytery, and um, the the church was in Vegas. So can you tell us a little bit about that, Kyle? Yes. Uh, on both these judicial cases that came before us, uh, it should be noted that we probably spent 
uh, 14 to 15 of our working hours on these two issues, and I promise you I will not make my answers that long. <laughs> so the, the issue regarding the contents of uh, the cup in the Lord's Supper uh, came to us as a complaint. Um, a member in the Las Vegas church, let me back up, the session that oversees the work going on in Las Vegas decided that the content of the cup would be wine. Uh, and our constitution leaves that decision in the hands of the local session. So our synod has declared in times past that uh, we do not find grape juice to be a violation of the regulative principle of worship, uh, but that the local session gets to determine, are you going to have wine? Are you going to have grape juice? Are you going to have both? And the local session decided that they were going to observe the Lord's Supper with wine only. A family objected to that, believing that that hurt their liberty of conscience. Uh, they, they do not drink alcohol. They had no interest in drinking alcohol. So they appealed. They complained first and foremost to the Pacific Coast Presbytery. Uh, but the Pacific Coast Presbytery looked at the Constitution, and it says that the local session gets to determine... And so the Presbytery did not sustain that complaint. Uh, they said the local session gets to determine this. We're not going to override that. And the complaint was then passed on to Synod. And I want to affirm both with this judicial case and, and the next one that we'll be talking about, right, this is the right of Presbyterianism. Um, this is exactly why Presbyterianism exists. It exists because conflict exists. And so in some ways, it's a difficult topic. But as you already said, Zach, we begin to see our theology or our ecclesiology in practice. And so this complaint came to Synod last year and a committee was assigned to work through it, to think through it, to bring recommendations. Um, and after some on-floor debate, and then uh, a private meeting between this family, the committee, uh, the local session, and a representative from Presbytery, uh, a happy resolution was found uh, where our synod passed a resolution uh, that in the contents of the cup, we will respect the liberty of conscience. Uh, so that if a church administers only wine, a member of the church may abstain from drinking that wine without uh, facing any ecclesiastical action or pushback as a result of that. And so uh, that agreement by those parties ended up circumventing what could have been a very, very long discussion, uh, and all the parties were satisfied with that. So the parties are satisfied, but doesn't that introduce an issue now that somebody can willfully and persistently neglect the um, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and not partake or f fully participate in the Lord's Supper, maybe taking the bread, but but not not the cup. Yeah, so that was a question that was spoken to on the floor of Synod, uh, and, and the committee tried to respond to it. You know, um, analogously, the Confession of Faith tells us to neglect the ordinance of baptism is a great sin. I think analogously, we could say to neglect the Lord's Supper is a great sin. And so part of the question came down to, well, what does the word neglect mean there? Are there extenuating circumstances that may keep somebody who would otherwise like to participate in the sacrament from being able to observe the sacrament? And so the question there became about neglect and 
whether it was satisfactory or not, kind of what was stated on the floor of Synod is, well, this doesn't really go against our membership vows that tell people they need to observe the sacraments. Uh, this is not a case of neglect. This is a case of, of a crisis of conscience and, and room needs to be left there. And it was also stated that this would not be setting precedence uh, for every other case that might arise which would be neglecting the sacrament. And so I'll reserve private comment, but whether or not that's satisfactory, that's what was discussed on the floor of Synod. There was at least great care taken to, to cover the bases. So that's, um, yeah. that's good. That's commendable at the very least. So moving on to the other judicial case, maybe a bit more difficult. This one came out of, um, uh, I guess, Presbytery of the Alleghenies, which uh, leveled a couple of charges against a retired pastor, and uh, and he was found convicted on those charges, and it had to do with a paper that uh, that he wrote um, to church courts, and his paper had requested a synod study committee to consider changing the RPCNA position on of men only in the eldership. So his paper, from what I understand, recommended that the RPCNA consider having uh, a you know, inviting women into into ordained ministry as elders, and as a result of him writing that paper, the Presbytery of the Alleghenies uh, charged him, and he was found convicted. I'm sure this took a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of air out of the room, but if you would briefly walk us through the issues at play and, and, and how you know, resolution, if any, was, uh, was attained. Yeah. So I want to clarify one thing. Um, the discipline that came to him from the Presbytery of the Alleghenies was not on account of writing a paper. So within Presbyterianism, we do believe that you can submit papers through a local session to a Presbytery, even to Synod, that might encourage changing the law and the order of the church. In that capacity, uh, this individual uh, more or less did what what was allowed for him to do. He is allowed to submit a paper like that. The Presbytery of the Alleghenies determined not to study the paper. So the paper was returned to uh, the session that forwarded it and, and returned to, to this author. As a result of the paper, a committee was established to uh, basically examine this man to see, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that the eldership should be open to women? And the committee was established to examine that and to try to shepherd him to a place where he could embrace the standards of the RPCNA. The committee was unable to do that. He was unable to affirm uh, our statement that the eldership is open only to men. And so on that basis, he was disciplined. And, and I want to be very clear because this is something that has been very confusing within our denomination. Uh, a lot of uh, people without the full account uh, have jumped to the conclusion that he was disciplined for merely submitting a paper. And that, that is not the case. Uh, the Presbytery reaffirmed that. The Judicial Committee I'm about to talk to reaffirmed that, that this was not a matter of discipline because he submitted a paper. It was a matter of discipline because a committee that was assigned to meet with him, he would not agree to the standards of our church. So uh, he, he did subsequently get suspended from office until a time where he could wholeheartedly embrace uh, the teaching of our church. 
And again, it's his Presbyterian right, and, and he, he took up that right, and he appealed that act of discipline to our synod. Uh, and last year is when that appeal originally came to the attention of synod. And synod established a committee that was supposed to, I forget the exact wording, but essentially they were supposed to bring recommendations for how to dis, uh, dispose of this appeal. What are we going to do with it? Um, and so a committee met this last year, a judicial committee, uh, and this is where everything got very confusing for Synod. Uh, there was major disagreement over the job description of the committee. The committee understood itself to have been appointed essentially to hear the appeal, to work through the testimony, to work through the evidence, and to bring before Synod a recommendation as to whether or not the appeal should be sustained or not sustained. Another group in Synod understood the task and the assignment that we gave this committee to simply get everything in order and clearly outline the process by which Synod would then hear the appeal. So that's two, basically, to, to break this down very simply as I can, one view basically said the committee needs to adjudicate the appeal. Another group said, no, the committee just needs to inform us what the proper procedure will be in order for Synod to adjudicate the appeal. And that difference of opinion really dominated the discussions on the floor of Synod. Did the committee do what Synod had assigned it to do? Um, and if Synod had assigned it to basically adjudicate the appeal, were we actually following the law and the order of our church, which our book of discipline clearly outlines how we are to deal with an appeal? And to avoid all the messy messiness of, of the procedural questions, at the end of the day, the judicial committee that had spent a hundred more hours on this throughout the year was dismissed with thanks and Synod has decided that next year the full court will hear the appeal. Uh, and so until that time, uh, this pastor remains under suspension. Uh, the Synod also offered an apology, uh, a very humble, I was very encouraged to see that, but a very humble apology that the way in which we had framed the original motion and the assignment for this committee was not as clear as it could have been. Uh, and that was unfair to the committee. It was unfair to the Presbytery of the Alleghenies. And it was unfair to this individual who, who was appealing the decision. And so uh, next year, all of Synod will, will hear this appeal. And, and what that basically means for us is that every delegate is going to need to read six to 700 pages of testimony and evidence. And then we will come to hear from the appellant. We will come to hear from the presbytery. The appellant will get the closing word. And then we will decide as a synod whether or not to sustain that appeal. And so it's a tedious process. Uh, but I, I really do think this is the avenue to promote both justice and mercy. Now, there's an important detail here that is is valuable for for understanding Presbyterian ways of doing things. And the detail is that, that the minister in question, uh, at the heart of the of this judicial case, has been suspended and is remaining suspended 
until the case is resolved. Notice that's a decidedly different MO than, than how, you know, um, alleged criminals are treated in the criminal justice system of the United States, right? Um, though there can be some detention for a time, generally, uh, one uh, value enshrined in our Constitution is innocent until proven guilty. Well, when there's a case before a Presbyterian court um, and, 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 there's, and there's not clarity on what exactly is going on, uh, you're suspended until the case is resolved. You're, it's almost like you're guilty until proven innocent. Am I articulating that accurately, Kyle, or, or am I coloring things a bit uncharitably or, or, or wrongly here for our— from our Presbyterian Well, in, 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 in one sense, I, I do think that raises a very important question. And back in my days in the PCA, you know, that was always a question in the Federal Vision controversy. Uh, it, not to dredge up the past, but, you know, do the courts of the church operate on a principle of innocent until proven guilty? And I'm, I'm not convinced that they are. But what I would say in this case is this man was found guilty of violating his ordination vows by an entire presbytery. Um, there were two charges brought against him, and the first charge uh, was overwhelmingly sustained. And so I don't want to say that he's innocent until proven guilty, but he remains guilty until his appeal is fully heard. So we don't, uh, you know, we don't, if, if the level of discipline in the RBCNA, we have levels of discipline. We have an admonition, a rebuke, a suspension, and an excommunication. If an appeal is made when the discipline was an admonition or a rebuke, um, that admonition or rebuke is essentially put on pause until the appeal is fully heard. If the level of discipline is higher than a rebuke, in this case a suspension, that suspension remains in force until the broader court decides what to do with it. And so I, I guess I just I don't want to say that he's He's, in, he's guilty until proven innocent. He's already been found guilty. Uh, and in that way, right, it is similar to our criminal. If somebody is put in jail and they appeal that to a higher court, they stay in jail until the court actually hears uh, the full case. So. Yeah. All right. So the parallel is actually a bit more similar to the American justice system. <laughs> <laughs> so my <Yeah>. my illustration <laughs> is uh, is a moot point, but that, that is helpful to at least pose the question because you're able to answer it, and I think in a very clear way, and and bring some light into the situation. Because when we get down to discipline cases in Presbyterian bodies, I've heard it said once in a Presbytery meeting um, back outside of Philadelphia, brothers, we know that Presbyteries never deal with discipline well. And I don't know if that's exactly true, but um, there is a sense in which it's always a difficult process and it's always um, confusing, at least at some point in the process. It will, it will, there will be some confusion arising, as we see here, where you have a lot of people probably even sitting in the court thinking, why is he being disciplined for submitting a paper when that's not the yeah. issue that's in question? Yeah. All right, moving on, brother, You uh, thank you for opening up not just the the, stud, the special study committees, but also the judicial committees that took up so much of your time. Now, one of the notable features of the RPCNA, and one of the way it punches outside of its weight class, to re recycle a phrase I used earlier, is uh, that the RPCNA has extensive work both independently and cooperatively abroad. 
And there are a number of exciting developments in this area of the RPCNA's ministry as a denomination, this, this focus on missions uh, to other countries. But one of them that stuck out to me and that is notable for the, for the historical nature of it is that the first RP work ever in South America uh, has been reported on, or you know, at least ever, anyone's knowledge, the first RP work in South America, has been reported on. What can you tell us about that? You know, even if just briefly to celebrate it. Yeah, so uh, we're really thankful. The Lord is doing wonderful things in Central and South America uh, through many of the labors of the RPCNA. Uh, the committee that oversees that is called CASA for Central and South America. And uh, they have contacts in Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, El Salvador, Mexico, and Venezuela. And most recently, we are super excited. Uh, a younger man by the name of Marcelo Sanchez uh, has been brought into the RPCNA at the Presbytery of the Alleghenies, uh, and he is working to establish a church in Chile. And uh, that's just very, very exciting for us. Uh, there have been years of work going into this, and we're beginning to see some of the fruits. And we had a wonderful opportunity at Synod to hear from Marcelo Sanchez, a very moving uh, speech that he gave uh, to, on the floor of Synod, uh, really telling us about what the Lord is doing in, in that country. And so we're just really, really glad. We're really thankful. The Lord is growing his church uh, and especially this branch of his church in Central and South America. And so that gave us uh, a lot of reasons to rejoice. And what can you tell us about uh, the work that Edgar Ibarra and Drew McKelvey are doing in terms of leading services in Spanish via Skype? Are those services that are being conducted in Chile or elsewhere in, um, in Spanish-speaking countries south of the border? Yeah, so those, Edgar Ibarra and, and uh, Drew McKelvey are, are helping to host worship services uh, in Spanish for uh, some people. People in El Salvador, uh, family in Mexico, and sometimes for uh, saints that are scattered throughout Latin America. And so they are conducting these services where they're actually presenting and singing the psalms in Spanish um, and helping introduce these brothers and sisters to Reformed worship and Reformed doctrine. And so uh, we're very thankful for their efforts, and they've been doing a lot of good work with that. That's a fascinating concept, too, leading services through Skype. But um, I'm encouraged that uh, that they're using means that are available to them to introduce the Reformed faith to Spanish-speaking um, you know, new believers uh, down in, in those countries that you mentioned. In now, in our segment on the OPC, we noted that the URCNA and the OPC are working together on a joint Psalter hymnal. This is uh, the segment, uh, the denom- denominational debrief segment I did with uh, Brad Peppo last week. Is there any coordination, either formally or informally, with Crown and Covenant Publications, which produces the Psalters for the RPCNA and the ARP? Are you, are you sharing any songs or any materials with the OP and the URC? Yeah, so you mentioned earlier, Zach, that I'm on the Education and Publication Board for the Synod of, of the RPCNA, and our board actually oversees Crown and Covenant Publications. And so one of the things that I'm excited about uh, with this joint venture between the OPC and URC is that they did contact us about uh, using a number of our psalm selections. And I don't remember which ones exactly those are, uh, but uh, they were very agreeable and very acquiescing to things. And we were able to have some overlap uh, in, in their Psalter and then ours as well. 
And one of the things that we were so thankful as, as an education and publication board and, and on behalf of Synod, is that we hope that this will further encourage uh, some collaboration between our sister denominations. Uh, it will be wonderful to be able to come together uh, when, when appropriate and open the book of Psalms together and sing psalms that are known to, to both uh, all three denominations, the OPC, URC, and, and the RPCNA. So uh, they, did, they did contact us for copyright information and for uh, certain selections of hours that they liked, and, and we're glad to be able to help in any way with that. That that to me is is huge because when I when I consider other hymnals or even other psalters and I look at where the settings come from, you know, a lot of times it said taking from you know the 1912 psalter of the United Presbyterian Church or taken from <laughs> you know some old hymnal or something like that. That's not bad. That's that's that can be fine if it could be a fine yep. setting, could be a great hymn for those of us who are inclusive uh, psalmist uh, singers, but. Um, at the same time, there's something deeply encouraging about uh, one Psalter hymnal um, overlapping with another Psalter that's currently in print and still being used by by lively denominations that are growing. And so we're growing together and worshiping together, even if not in the same room, using the same songs. I mean, think... I, at least to me, maybe maybe I'm making a bigger deal of it than than I should. But to me, it's deeply profound, encouraging, and a source of hope for greater unity in the body of Christ, um, greater visible yeah. unity. Even I mean, consider someone, let's say, from an OPC church visiting in a town. The closest Reformed church is RPCNA, so they go there and then they sing a psalm that they recognize that they've sung in their church, and then they go to a URC church somewhere else in the country and, and they sing that psalm again and they. You know, wow, we really do have a lot in common. We worship um, in ways that are more similar than not. That's that's a great blessing to the church. Yep, and that's that's definitely the way our board approached it is, is one, you know, can I admit as an RPCNA pastor, I'm only half excited for the Psalter hymnal. I'm excited for the Psalter half, not always <laughs> excited for the hymnal. That's a dumb joke. I'm sorry. But, um, you know, we, we do approach this with, <laughs> thank you. We are thankful uh, for the unity that I think this, even in a small way, will begin to promote between our denominations, which have so much in common. Absolutely. So we've covered a lot of ground, Kyle, but do you have any final thoughts or last words you'd like to share with our listeners about Synod? Well, you know, another big event at Synod or a big moment is uh, our denomination has a seminary, the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And for the last seven or eight years, uh, we have worked very hard to establish the Biblical Counseling Institute, uh, BCI, which all of our MDiv students are required to take courses there in, in helping with pastoral counseling. And that BCI has been led by an OPC pastor, Dr. George Scipioni, for the last seven or eight years. Uh, but Dr. Sibioni has noted that it's it's coming time for him to retire. And so this year, uh, Synod did have a candidate presented to us, 
to take over uh, for Dr. Scipione upon his retirement as the head of the BCI. And he's one of our very own uh, right now, Pastor Keith Evans, who's a pastor in Lafayette, Indiana, uh, will be joining the ranks of the seminary. So uh, that's a significant step forward. The BCI is one of the strongest points of our seminary, uh, and we are really praying and hoping for uh, Pastor Evans' success in in succeeding uh, Dr. Scipione there. Uh, but other than that, that really covers really a, the, a large amount of what our synod was was occupied with. But uh, many reasons to be thankful. And we ended, as we end every year, singing together. Uh, you know, what a blessed thing it is when brothers dwell in unity. Thank you so much, brother, for your time. Thank you for sharing this good news and in particular reminding me of some of the changes in Dr. Scipione's um, occupation there at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For those of our listeners who don't know, we borrow Dr. Scipione on an annual basis to teach our pastoral counseling intensive every spring. So, um, you know, we're we're thankful for him and his service at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, but also here at Greenville, and we're excited to to um to just congratulate him on his retirement as well at least from teaching full time up there in Pittsburgh. So Kyle, thank you again for joining me on the podcast. God bless you and your ministry. Thank you very much. The privilege is all mine, Zach. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.